Hello, y'all, and welcome to the Candy for Trees podcast. I'm Persephone Jam, your host with the most this Thursday evening, and I am here today to talk to you a little bit about music. It was my sophomore year in high school when I first discovered Take 5 by Dave Brubeck. I couldn't make sense of the beat at first because, like, it was in a time signature I had never heard before. 5-4. I guess, hence the name. Take 5 is very aptly titled because it is indeed in 5-4 time, and I I couldn't count 5-4 time for a while, like as far as like counting beats and stuff, but I did love to listen to it. Take 5 is an interesting piece because, first off, like I just said, I I couldn't count it for a while. But after that... After I learned to count a little better and gain a better sense of rhythm, like, gaining rhythm is something that's taken me my whole life. I'm still not perfect at it. I wish I had as perfect rhythm as a metronome, but unfortunately I don't, and that's probably never going to happen. But hey, never say never, knock on wood, what have you. So, I just learned to enjoy Take 5. Now... Dave Brubeck and that song launched me into a whole new world of time signatures, feelings. Like, I felt so many things when I listened to Blue Rondo a la Turk, Take 5, and a notable one, but kind of a hidden gem, 11-4. Now, one of the cool things that I absolutely love about Dave Brubeck and his bands, various formations, etc., is that they improvise in odd time. A lot of times, like, old jazz recordings, like, old jazz albums were sometimes recorded in a day. But Dave Brubeck and his crew, or crews, could improvise on the spot, if I recall. Like, I mean, even, like, in their live recordings, they would improvise on the spot in strange time signatures. 11-4, the live recording, I believe, at Carnegie Hall... Dave himself said something about how hard it is to improvise in 11-4, and so they leave that up to the main lead player. Now, I wish I knew his name. I don't. I don't don't right now, but I'll look it up soon. And um, so they would leave the improvisation up to him. At the time, I was completely blown away. Because at that time, I thought I couldn't improv, I couldn't count in an odd time, I couldn't do anything, I couldn't play in 5-4, what have you, because I didn't believe in myself. Um, and so it was an interesting time for me, and I just grew to appreciate odd time music. Now, as I got older, I fell in love with math rock, which is a whole bunch of odd time, but in rock music instead of jazz, and it can be pretty pretty much anything they want. Like, I was in Annapolis, Maryland at one point, and I stumbled upon a math rock concert. They were like the last group of the night, and it was the soundtrack to my life. I wish I knew what group it was. I could tell you if I remembered, but... I unfortunately do not. I have the memory of a goldfish sometimes, and that's not okay. (laughs) But I do have aids for my memory, and if I had that journal, if I could find that journal, I would tell you. But this group was amazing. They had a couch at the venue, and I just kind of sat down on the couch and zoned the heck out. Because it was just so chill and so wonderful. And so with those genres, I found something in me that had been missing. 
Odd Time. Now, I, I had seen the Wikipedia article for Odd Time several times before I finally listened to this piece. But I remember listening to and like listening to people talk about it and reading this Wikipedia article about the Rite of Spring. Stravin Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring. And with the Rite of Spring, it is comes with a reputation for having some of the strangest and most brutal time signatures, even of that time, but in classical music that people play. And the time signatures flip. I've seen the sheet music. It's bizarre. But I love it so much. Because I listen to the Rite of Spring. Well, more specifically, I listen to the Bad Pluses impressions of the Rite of Spring. The Bad Plus is this amazing jazz band. If you like to hear chaos in a recording, you should look up the Bad Plus. And I'm not kidding you. This is amazing and I love them so, so, so much. And... With the Bad Plus, they did this interpretation of the Rite of Spring. It gets a little too chaotic for me at times, but I, it was my first launch point into this amazing suite of songs, pieces. It was originally written as a ballet, and I believe it caused... I know it caused riots when it was first performed at the Paris Opera. I believe it was the Paris Opera in Paris, of course, in some place in Paris, and it caused a riot. Now, if you listen closely, or maybe not even so closely, you will know why. Because it's a piece in such brutal time signatures, and it's it's often performed like, it's like meant to be visceral. I heard a conductor describe it once as, it's basically primal urges. Like, fear. Like, sex. And, oh, like fight, flight, or screw. And primal urges like hunger, etc. as well. And you gotta play it like that. The second piece or movement, I'm not sure what it's called here, is I believe it's a sustained E flat but Pardon my terrible impression. Please look it up if you're interested. But it's very visceral. Very I guess brutal is a word for it, but it's also chaotic. But there's beauty in the chaos, and that's what struck me when I first heard it. Because it was like, I mean, I'm not really one for, like, primal urges and stuff, but it sounded like me, but in classical music. I found myself in this set of pieces, and that was something that I treasured. And so I, as Candy for Trees, the original intention of Candy for Trees was to create pieces like the Rite of Spring, pieces that I had been missing my whole life and took it upon myself to create. But eventually I migrated all of my catalog under my maiden name over to Candy for Trees and used that as my unified catalog for everything. And along that way, along the way, I lost a piece of myself. I kind of lost under the weight of trying to see what people would want, predict what people would want, predict what people would expect of me. I lost what I wanted to hear. And it was something that was 
really, really damaging for me because I spent the greater part of a year trying to write happy music when I wasn't wanting to write happy music. I mean, I was very happy for the most part, but at the same time, it was difficult to write happy music because I had just released an album called The Places We Come Home To. Under my maiden name, again. And that was that album was fairly easy to write. It was a Valentine's Day present for my husband. But at the same time, it took a lot out of me. It was a way it was something that I had never done before, very stripped back, which I was no stranger to stripped back arrangements, because after I stopped multi-tracking in about 2015, that was all I did. But these were some very, very happy songs and for some reason, my brain doesn't do well with writing happy songs. And so people loved it, but I thought I had it in my brain that people only wanted to hear happy songs from me then. So I didn't write any good, any solid music for about a year. Until I started mining conflict again. The conflicts in my life, the conflicts in between people and me. And I came up with a good deal of music, and I started playing music again. But it still wasn't what I was observing was missing from the world and then me putting that missing thing down on paper it was just me doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again and it wasn't it didn't sit well with me and it eventually became something of a duty rather than something i even enjoyed because i was posting youtube videos like every day nearly every day at least and then i would just get burned out and stop and I remember my husband and I on a rainy day in Anchorage, we were going down, we were going through town and he was like, you need to make music that you want to hear, not what other people want to hear. You need to make music for yourself. And that was a big thing for me. And I've been honestly thinking about it since off and on. And I'm terrible at taking advice. And it usually takes me about a month when someone gives me advice for me to come back around and say, hey, that worked, I'm sorry for fighting you. And in this case, it was more than a month. It was closer to a year. And it hit me today. I Last night, I downloaded a program called Propellerhead's Reason. And it's a recording software because I'd been struggling with Cakewalk by BandLab, another recording software for the better part of like three months. And it was just completely wrecking my brain. And I didn't like it. So I downloaded Reason, and I had a few people shout time signatures and key signatures at me. One of my friends, who is also into like more avant-garde music like Dave Brubeck and other strange like composers of quote-unquote stranger music like John Cage, shouted 7-8 time and E minor at me. And so I ran with that. And I took it upon myself from last night to this morning to create the basis of the most aggressively 7-8 song I could. And boy howdy, do I love it. I can't believe I just said boy howdy. Oh geez, my Texan is showing. This is bad. And it finally clicked this afternoon. This is my mission in music. To create things that I feel are missing from the world of sound. And to settle for less settle for nothing less than to make them happen. And so that was something that I've been really thinking on. It's kind of been an egg in my mind and it finally hatched. I don't know. That's the weirdest metaphor I could come up with. Why did I come up with that? I don't know. Let's roll with it. But um, it was 
it was a beautiful moment because it's kind of like I made a pact with myself saying, hey, no, freaking stop it. Um, and it was, it's, it was really profound because it's not something that I really think of before. It's not really something that I think of often or think of before because I'm always so busy trying to think of what would other people think? What would the community think? What would make me money? And my husband said something that, and people have been saying this to me. It's like, it's kind of reverse engineering it where if you make something that you love, People will be drawn to it. And if it's something that you love and it's something that you want people to hear that's not just for the sake of making money or for the sake of being popular, but for your sake, people will want to hear it and they will gravitate toward that and they'll be what they need as well. Um, one of my friends who is great at giving advice and again, I'm horrible at taking it, said like people might be drawn to the raw emotion of what I might make if I make it for me. And I honestly don't think I would purely make it for me. Like, it's definitely something that I would want to hear. But I think there is still an element in sharing. And there's something to be said for sharing music that you make. And a lot of times people are thankful for that. But, like, I think that if I do share what I make, it within the context of this is what I feel is missing from the music world, then more people will be drawn to the passion in it than just the, oh, hey, I make music. Oh, hey, this is for you. Oh, hey, whatever. But if I come up to them and I say, this is something I feel very strongly about, this is something that I made from my heart, more people will be drawn to it. And that's something that I've never really done before. I mean, I'm passionate about music. I really am. But it doesn't come out in ways that I like. Or like things that I'm really, really set on. I always feel like it's half-baked or... I'm doing it for commercial success, which really honestly is not coming. Um, and that's fine. I don't know, because I haven't made something that I really like yet. Mago, my album Mago, is really the closest I got. But at the same time, it feels like there's something missing. I did it on a 200-year-old out-of-tune piano that belonged to my great-aunt, or great-great-aunt, I'm not sure, originally. And that was... A very interesting time because it was turbulent. I made it in the context of turbulence. I was in the process of leaving my former church, which actually was years in the making. And that was painful. And so I wrote it in the context of three different... No, yeah, three different relationships. One that was ending, one that was kind of ended in looking back on it. And then my relationship with me. And I honestly think it was the relationship with me that really tied it in. It was a piece of my soul that went into that album. But at the same time, I feel like I could have spent way more time on it. Like, way more time on it. And that was hard. Really, really hard. Because while I love that album, it still feels like, again, there's something missing. But... I'm, I really want to go back and revisit it someday after having practiced all the songs a little more and like maybe make like a deluxe edition for when I go back to it because it was released in 2017 so the 10 year anniversary of that would be 2027 and that's a long time from now but I really want to just let the song simmer until then and then maybe make a revisited recording of Mago when 
2027 comes around as a 10-year anniversary present to myself and to the people who might have been following me, but mainly to myself. Because that's really important. And I don't know, the, the whole taking time with it is something that people have been wanting me to do for years, but I've never really like taken it into account. Because, I don't know, I'm very much a get it on paper, get it out there, done. And then it's good. But there's also something to be said for crafting it lovingly, putting everything you have, everything you can give into it, taking breaks also, and really, really, really giving it the time and attention it deserves. And that's what I mean by not settling for less in this case. That's what I mean by... Finding things that are not out there right now and putting them into sound, into words, into something. Because there are not many people out there who like to explore Odd Time. Odd Time frightens many musicians, I've found. Or, like, they're intimidated by it. Or, like, it's very difficult for them to approach it. Whereas I've kind of steeped myself in it. And that's what I want to hear more of in the world. Pop in Odd Time. Like jazz in more weird time or what have you but it's very important to me and I'm realizing this today that odd time and different sounds that probably shouldn't be in odd time are things that I want to hear and so it's honestly I feel like it's my solemn duty to bring these to life and one more thing before I wrap up but the importance of taking breaks is something that I've been realizing as well. And with recording, I have to take breaks. Because if I get too much in a recording at once, then it'll muddle the sound because my ear will get used to it. And that's really not good for a recording because then I'll have to go back, backtrack, be like, what's out of tune? What's out of time? What do I do now that I've spent six hours in this recording software putting together this thing that sounds like complete crap? And I usually have to let it rest for about 12 hours after I do a little session. And that's actually been really, really beneficial for me. Because when I, like, write my play or do something of that nature, I'm able to sit in it for, like, almost 8 to 10 hours at a time if I get really, 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 really into it. And not give it a rest. And as a result, my mind will wear out. And I burn out really easily. And partially that is because I'm not really writing for me, first off. I mean, it's something that is very much me on a page, but it's not something that I feel is missing from the world. But at the same time, it's very hard for me to take breaks when I'm in the play because I have to get all the plot down before it leaves my brain. But with music, with this specific music that I'm trying to create, I'm basically letting it go where it needs to go. And with that, that's something important to me because there's something I forgot to mention. I'm going in without a plan. Just having people holler key time signatures, possibly modes at me, and going from there. So there's kind of like an element of audience participation to it. But at the same time, there's no real structure of what I want to make. Like, I'm basically going wherever the song wants to go, and that's a thrilling thing for me. Because that's that was the way I originally d approached multi-tracking. I would basically create a track and sing what needs to be sung over it, because... That's often where the music takes me. 
when I, it took me when I did it. Like, for example, I was just playing around with... When I did my song, My Island, I was playing around with um, a drum maker on Logic Pro 10 on my old Mac. And I made this amazing, like, shuffle drum track that I really, really love still to this day. And I added a quick chord progression over it and then sang a poem that I had just written called My Island in, like, no time at all. And then stacked my own, vo like, vocoded or, like, pitch-shifted vocals over it so this has, like, this subtle harmony. And I had no idea where that was even going to go. But I did it anyway. And there's My Island, which is one of my favorite songs to play to this day. And that's something that I'm looking forward to doing, because I know the songs will take me where they need to go. Thank you so much for tuning in on this lovely Thursday night. I am Persephone Jam again. And thank you so much for tuning into the Candy for Treats podcast. See you next Thursday. Bye!